This is our main text in John chapter 8, but to begin with this morning, I would like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Proverbs. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 9. In Proverbs chapter 9, and I'd like you to pay attention to the words, obviously, verse 8, do not reprove a scoffer, lest he hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Go with me to Proverbs 12. One more verse. The book of Proverbs is saturated with verses related to what I'm talking about here. But one more. Proverbs 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But he who hates reproof is stupid. That's pretty blunt, don't you think? That's pretty straightforward. Both of those passages that we read, you say, how in the world is this going to relate to John chapter 8? I hope already you can see it from what I did read. But as we look at blunt passages like this, I want to stimulate our thinking as well this morning about reactions. How we react. How do we react to certain situations? What do you mean? How do we react when we? How do you react? How do I react? Let's put ourselves in this picture. How do we react when someone confronts us? Confronts us with what? Truth. When someone confronts us with truth that hurts. When someone confronts us with correction. They come to us to correct us. When someone comes to us, especially in an area like this, comes to us and addresses what might be, we'd call a blind spot, meaning something that we can't see, but it's clear as a bell to everybody else. And they come and they talk to us about those things, even just truth from the Word of God. How do we react? Do we react with anger? You know, do we react with defensiveness? Now, we can, before I go any further, stop right here and say, yeah, and already we've got 15 people, probably starting with myself, in our mind. But do you see yourself? Anger, defensiveness, retaliatory. Someone mentioned that to me this morning in regard to something totally unrelated to this message in one sense or anything that was going on. I had to do at a sporting event. And someone said, well, yeah, just wait till we get you. Really? That's a great reaction. Or when someone confronts us with truth, when someone confronts us with correction, when someone confronts us with maybe a blind spot, do we have a humble spirit? Do we have a repentive spirit? Thank you for that. May God help me. Do we get down on our knees? Do we sorrow for the reality that's been expressed about our own life? How is it that we react before we look at this text? How is it that we react to situations? I have to be honest with my own spirit as I've been studying this week and even in preparation, I have to say admittedly, unfortunately, I think many times I react the former way, with defensiveness. 
with anger, with not wanting to hear what's being said. And I would venture to say that in reality, while you might recognize that in me, that's probably a good picture of you too. That when someone's confronting an area that you're sensitive to and you've got all your rationale as to why it is so, you're not going to even hear it, let alone want to react with a humble spirit. Christians, unfortunately, many, many times before we get into this text with the Jews, react in reality the same way the Jews react in this text. They don't react with a humble spirit. They react with attack. They react with a long list of even biblical excuses for what they do. In our text this morning, as you well know and have heard at least 50 times over the last three months, we are at the Feast of Tabernacles. <laughs> are we ever going to get out of the feast? Yes, today, by God's grace. We are in the Feast of Tabernacles. This text has brought us to the end of it, and we now come to the end of the, the Feast of Tabernacles in this text. We also come very significantly to the end of a conversation that Jesus Christ has been having with the Jews, a very lengthy conversation on the last day that we've been looking at over and over from different angles. And I want you to remember some things now in relationship to understanding our text before us. They have been claiming, that is the Jews, first of all, that Abraham was their father. Would you just quickly scan verse 33? There you'll see, we are Abraham's offspring. If you look at verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. In the context they have been defending themselves as belonging to the seed of Abraham. Then they took it a step further and claimed that God was their father. Would you scan just quickly verse 41. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. So in the midst of this conversation that is going on, as it's drawing to a close, and the feast is drawing to a close, they have been trying to defend religiously that they belong to Abraham, that they belong to God, they know him, and he's their father. And what has happened right up to, through last week's message, let us recall it, because the reactions happen in this particular passage today. The Lord Jesus Christ challenged them. And he challenged them, let me remind us of this, that number one, because it's so appropriate, I believe, for us today, that religious activity does not matter. You see, because these Jews who were confronting the Lord and saying they belong to Abraham, saying they belong to God, were very religious. And we can think today as Christians, because of religious activity, everything is right in the way it should be. Secondly, they were very well equipped with knowing the Old Testament particularly. And you've heard me say this before. Never before, as far as I know, in the history of mankind, has there been the ability to have in our hands the Word of God as we have today. And I personally believe that never before in the history of man is there such an ability for the average, everyday person through technology, to have all of the Word of God and the use of all of the technology of even parsing verbs and doing everything that they want so that what used to be 
what a theological student only could get, the average person in the pew has. We have tremendous Bible knowledge. But that doesn't amount to a hill of beans. We also are living in a day and age in which there are more professions of faith than ever before, I believe. And you've heard me say it. I believe if you look at the statistics, you will find that the world has been saved three times over. And everybody's Christian. I believe, personally, I hope, with all my heart, that my high school students that I teach in school had their eyes open with some of the lessons I recently taught them. Because we went into the Bible and noticed, by the way, that there are only three times the word Christian is even used in the Bible. And not one of those times was it ever used by somebody saying, I am a Christian. Today, that's what everybody's saying. I am a Christian. They didn't say that. They said, I'm a bondservant of Christ. I'm an apostle of Christ. I'm a follower. I belong to Christ. It was only others who spoke about Christianity. But today we have all kinds of professions of faith. They were, and it was the application, Pastor Dan. They were talking, of, he was talking to people who knew the word of God. He was talking to people who were very religious. He was talking to people who professed to belong to God. Keep that in mind before we expound on this text this morning. And what has he said to them? He said to them a couple of things. Number one, last week, Abraham was their physical father. Verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's offspring. Christ admitted that. Yes, I know that you belong to him. However, you are not spiritually a member of Abraham's father. Verse 40. He said, but as it is, you are seeking to kill me. And he says, Abraham didn't do this. And boy, basically pointed out that Abraham is not their father spiritually. Not only that, frightening enough, as we came to the close of verse, down through verse 47, the Lord Jesus Christ challenged them on something else. And that was that God was not their father either. These were the saying, uh, the people were saying, God's my father. I belong to God, profession of faith. Verse 42. If God were your father, he said. Look at verse 47. Verse 47. He is the of God. He is my word. What does he say? End of the verse. Because you are not of God. So they were religious, well-knowledged, and they were professing to belong to Abraham and professing to belong to God. Jesus Christ has just confronted them with truth. What is the truth? You are on your way to hell. You don't know God. You don't know Abraham. In fact, what we ended with last week is that Satan, in reality, is your father. Verse 44. Look at it. You are of your father, the devil. How's that for confronting someone face-to-face, -face, bluntly and boldly? He was straightforward. Satan was their father. And I want you to notice that, by the way, because it is significant for us to remember, that it doesn't matter how much Bible knowledge you have. It doesn't matter what family you're connected to, where you were born, or what you profess. The way you demonstrate who you belong to is your actions. Not what you say, but what you do. And let me just highlight that to you. Look at verse 39. End of the verse. The deeds of Abraham. Verse 41. The deeds of your father. Verse 42. 
you would love me. Verse 44. Do the deeds to do the desires of your Father. It's demonstrated by actions, not by words. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, when we come to this text, has come to confront the reality of who they really are. Why did he do that? Why did he confront them? To hurt them? Why does someone come to you to hurt you? If that's their motive, let God judge that. Hopefully that's not the case. Does God, does, do, do people come to you and does God come to us and confront us with truth to hurt us? Not at all. Rather, it's because of love. Rather, the challenge is to help us to be challenged, to think about, to humble ourselves. And it is also to give opportunity to believe. We've seen that everywhere in the chapter. Look at verse 30 of chapter 8. He spoke these things, many came to believe. Verse 31, he's now speaking to those who believe on him. And we're going to see again today that he's giving them opportunity again to repent and to change. So what I want to say to us as we're about to go into this verse, we're looking at the reactions of those who have been confronted with something they didn't want to hear. Confronted with some realities. And I want to say one other thing on this for application to us. Don't be afraid to go talk to someone else. People don't like confrontation. No one does. But if you love someone, even your children, or a brother in Christ, sister in Christ, you will talk to them. And throughout history, God's people have been challenged over and over and over again by those who do not like what they hear. But this is an opportunity to live for Christ and an opportunity to confront with the truth. So keep on confronting people with the truth. Let's look at the reactions now. And I want you to see it in the light of the title that I gave to the message. Just we're going to compare two type of things. They said that their father was God. Jesus said that their father was what? Satan. And how is he going to show that through the demonstration of their reactions? We'll see it right here as we contrast it and go through it. Let's begin by seeing the initial reaction. The name-calling that comes from those who do not know God and how the Lord Jesus Christ was really seeking God's honor. Verses 48 through 51. Here we go. Satan or God? Who's their father? Well, look at the Jews. Verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Thank you for calling that to my attention. I'm convicted greatly. Might God help me as I repent. Is that the way your Bible reads? You see what I'm saying? Someone comes to you and says, you know, so-and-so, this is not right in your life. You're involved in sin. You shouldn't be doing this. And we react by saying, oh, thank you so much for coming and talking to me about that. I, I really need to humble myself. No. They started by name-calling. Look at it, verse 48. You are a Samaritan and have a demon. Do you know who they were talking to? The God of the universe. The one that they claimed they knew. And they were name-calling. Can you imagine, first of all, how offended they were? They were offended greatly. We need to understand the text. To have someone come to them, and they say they belong to God, and they are Abraham's seed, and for them, for that person to say to them, your father's the devil. They should have been offended. They were. And these were religious leaders. And he's saying to them, you're of the devil. They have two choices. They can repent or they can react with hostility. They get into name calling. They call him a Samaritan. Just go back to John chapter 4. Just one verse. John chapter 4. You know a lot about the Samaritans. You've been well taught on this. But I think let the scripture speak for itself. In verse 9, this is the woman at the well, you might remember. 
And in verse 9, the Samaritan woman therefore said to him, that is to Jesus, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That's enough to see why they're calling him a Samaritan in verse 30, 48. They thought of him as a dog, if you want to be literal about it. That's who they were talking to, the God of the universe says. You're like a dog to us. And those are people who are a result of mixed marriages. Then, to take it worse, they called something which they commonly did. They referred to the Lord Jesus Christ as having a demon. Just look at verses, chapter 7, same book. There's many verses on this, but I addressed it back in chapter 7. So chapter 7, verse 20. The multitude back then, what did they say to Christ? You have a demon. Here they are. They've been confronted with truth, an opportunity to repent, and they're basically saying this. You are crazy. You are possessed by Satan himself to be able to say that. You are demon-possessed. You are a Samaritan. You're the lowest of low. That doesn't sound like repentance to me. That doesn't sound like someone who is ready to hear what God has to say. What happened? The Lord Jesus Christ had exposed their true state. He had exposed their sin and their reaction. Their first step of demonstrating that they belong to Satan is to claim that he has a demon. How did Jesus respond? Well, we see the way even a man of God should respond it's the same way. First of all, in verse 49, he denies that he's demon-possessed. He says, I do not have a demon. But then he doesn't dwell on that. He doesn't dwell on the Samaritan situation. And I want to point that out because, again, by application, when we're confronted sometimes, we dwell on what the person's saying to us. And then we start over and over, and we come down with a long laundry list of why that's not so. The Lord Jesus Christ has simply made a statement. I'm not demon-possessed. And then he got into this. He was here to honor God. They were dishonoring him. Were they not? Verse 49, yes. You dishonor me in what you say. But he was not concerned about himself. We get concerned about ourselves when confronted by somebody with truth. He wasn't concerned about that at all. He was concerned about doing this, maintaining the honor of God the Father. And that's what he's been setting out to do. Let's just look at that. We've seen it consistency, consistently. Excuse me. Look at verse 29 of uh, chapter 8. He who sent me is with, is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to God. That should be in the forefront of our thinking for application here. We should be in the forefront of our thinking no matter what it is, even when confronted by somebody with something that's in our life. I should be here not to defend myself, but to please God. And if you were to look just at John alone, let's look at just three more verses in John. Go with me to chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And what? To accomplish his work. Chapter 5, verse 30. It's just to let you see it in John. It's been overwhelming. Chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear I judge, my judgment is just. Why? Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Chapter 6, verse 38. We've been seeing this over and over again. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Lord Jesus Christ's focus was right. It was on glorifying the Father. And let me say by application, that ought to be ours. Our focus ought to be on pleasing God. On not even defending ourselves. He doesn't defend himself here yet. Not at all. He simply says, that's not true. What you said is not true. But I'm not here to bring honor and glory to myself. I'm not seeking that. And ironically, <laughs> he points out that the very one that they are claiming is his father, they are the ones that are dishonoring him. They claim that God is the one they know, the one they belong to, and yet they are dishonoring him. He said that in verse 42. But he says it right here. I, but I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who keeps my word, he shall never see death. He was focused. And what he says when he gets to verse 50 and 51 is basically there's a hope for them. Hope in what? He's saying basically if you keep my word, and that is not, by the way, to earn salvation. Let me address that. The keeping of his word we already saw is the equivalent of believing that was earlier in chapter 8. But by believing him, they will never see death. He was not concerned about his own glory. That's why you had the response of reading you had this morning. In Philippians chapter 2, while it still has the verses that are on the side of this church, that so often I forget, and I guarantee you forget, others first, others interest, the Lord Jesus Christ said something very significant. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Just for a moment. Philippians chapter 2. Nine through eleven. There it says, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him. Who did it? God the Father. A name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. You know, you would have thought that in this incident with the Jewish leaders, he would have turned around and said, You better just bow down to me right now. He wasn't concerned about that. I will wait. And that's what he means in verse fifty. I'll leave it to the one who judges. I'll leave it to the one who's going to seek and give the glory. And that's God the Father. Those who are in heaven, those who are on earth, and those who are under the earth. Verse 11. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, notice this, to the glory of God the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ was focused. And he wasn't concerned. And I won't take the time to turn there, but in Peter it says the same thing. That when he bore our sins... Before that, it says he committed himself to the one who judges righteously. He didn't retaliate. We want to retaliate. We need to commit ourselves to God. It was God the Father who at the baptism and the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. The Lord Jesus Christ stayed focused even in the face of opposition. And then he says in verse 51, as we just noted, he gives them hope. Rather than showing them that he's just trying to hurt them, he says, look, the one that believes in the, and keeps my word will never see death. Now, obviously, it was not physical death that he was talking about. That's all they could see. All they could see is the physical death. But Jesus appeals to them to accept, to believe on him. What do they do? They basically ridicule him. Rather than believe in it, they ridicule him. They go from a step of just starting by calling him names to ridiculing. Verse 52. Let's pick it up. 52 to 58. The Jews said to him, 
Now we know that you have a demon. They haven't changed. They weren't repentive. What do they say? Abraham died. The prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, you shall never taste death. Never taste death. And by the way, he's consistently taught that. That they will never taste death. That is something you'll find consistently in the word of God. As you look throughout in Christ's teaching. The one that would come to him will never die. That's John chapter 11 later on when he says on the resurrection and the life. But he taught that in chapter 6. Just look at verse 50. Chapter 6 verse 50 of John. This is the bread which comes down from heaven so that one may eat it of it and what? Not die. Not die. So he's not dealing with physical death. He's dealing with eternal death. He's dealing with eternal separation from God. And he's pointing out to them that they could have that life. But the Jews convict him of a demon again and they appeal to Abraham and the prophets. They did not escape death, did they? Well, not physically, but they were missing the point. Why is that the case that they were just seeing the physical? Because they were spiritually blind. You and I have heard that over and over again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But we can confront people with truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can confront them with the reality that he is the only way. And people just don't want to accept it. And we wonder why. Spiritual blindness. And that's what they had. People that were claiming to belong to Abraham. Claiming to have God as their father. Very religious. Very knowledgeable. But they didn't know God. Claiming that he had a demon. When in reality they belonged to Satan themselves. And he says, they say basically to him in verse 53, when he says, whom do you make yourself out to be? We would put it this way. Who do you think you are? That's what it means. They were saying to Jesus Christ, who do you think you are anyway? Why do I bring that up? Have you ever done that to somebody? Probably not. Probably what you and I have done is waited and talked to somebody else. Someone confronted you about something, and who do they think they are? Same case. You see? How do we react? This is truth that they were confronted with. Why? Jesus wanted to hurt them. No, Jesus wanted them to see who he was and where they needed correction in their life. And after name-calling, they become very critical. No sensitivity to spiritual things. No pondering. That's Proverbs. They were stupid. They weren't taking reproof. They weren't taking correction. But the Lord Jesus Christ had enabled him to come up with these statements. Look at verse 54. Number one, I don't seek my own glory, he says. Verse 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's not important. Who does he seek? He seeks the Father to be glorified. It is my Father who will glorify me, of whom you say he's your God. There's the ironic situation. They were claiming that God was their Father, and they weren't even honoring him. He also says, verse 55, You have not come to know him, but I know him. How's this for bluntness? And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar just like you are. How's that? To confront somebody. But I do know him, and I keep his word. 
What happened is he says to them, I'm not interested in my glory. I'm interested in the glory of the Father. I do know him, and I'm trying to tell you about him. And then he goes back to Abraham in verse 56 with an unbelievable statement. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And notice what he says. He saw it. And he was glad. Abraham saw his day. And he was glad. He rejoiced in it. Abraham looked forward to the coming Messiah. Abraham believed God. They say that they believed God. They really didn't. How did Abraham see the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the way? Let me answer that question for you, or try to, because I think it's legitimate. The Lord Jesus Christ says Abraham not only rejoiced and looked forward to, but he saw. Now, a number of commentaries have given a number of reasons. In fact, if you have a study Bible and you look in the footnotes, you'll see all kinds of reasons that are given. Did he see it in Genesis 12, for example, when he believed God and he left his family? Did he see it when in chapter 15 of Genesis he saw the stars of heaven and, and Abraham looked up? Did he see the Lord Jesus Christ and then he saw the promise of the Son? Did he see it in Genesis chapter 22, for example, when he offered up Isaac to be sacrificed? Many believe that that's when it was. And even use Hebrews as an example for that. Is that when it was with the resurrection in Hebrews chapter 11? Well, all of that's possible. I, I'm going to tell you what my opinion is. That he's talking about not a specific incident, but the faith of Abraham. That is that the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ is pointing to Abraham believed God in all the promises that the Messiah would come through him. That the Messiah would come through his promised seed. Why would I say that? Because of Hebrews, but not the one that the commentaries usually go to. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. But I want you to see something else as to why I say that. Hebrews 11. Verse 13. Not 17 to 19. I believe the biblical explanation is given right here. Hebrews 11.13. After the Lord reiterates these people of faith, including Abraham, verse 8... Watch what he says in 13. All these died where? In faith. Watch. Without receiving the promises, but here it is. Having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I believe he explains it to you right there. In other words, it wasn't any one of those specific incidences. They all worked together. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 22, the raising of his son when he believed God. The point is, these were people of faith. They believed God. And even when they hadn't received the promises, they still trusted God in his word. And that included the Messiah and the coming of the one seed through Abraham. That is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's confronting with the Jews with this. You say Abraham's your father, he's not. You don't do his deeds. And not only that, Abraham saw my day. How? By faith. He trusted in the promises of God. And that's why you've got back in Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. That's why you've got the list in Hebrews of all those different people who what? By faith. We want answers. 
We want to see things, and we won't believe God unless this happens or that happens. We need to be people just like Abraham who go to the Word of God and take what God says. These Jews wouldn't do it. He was saying to these Jews, you say God's your father, you say Abraham's your father, Satan's your father because you won't believe on me. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And they wouldn't see that by faith. In fact, their very next reaction comes down, it's still part of it, in verse 57. What do they say? You are not yet 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? Now why did they pick 50? How old was the Lord, by the way? He was approximately 30 to 33 years age. Why didn't they say 40? I don't know. It's just a round age. But they said, you're not even 50. You're a young kid. So if you're under 50, you're a young kid today. How's that? All right? If you're under 50. And that's what they said. Some commentators believe this, and it could be true, that the Lord, because of all the burdens that he carried and because he was f so focused on the things of God, probably looked like he was 50 years old when he was 30. That could be true. I don't know. What I do know, the scriptures say there was nothing that you'd look upon him and desire it in him. The point of the matter is verse 58. And then we'll look at the final reaction. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, watch this. Before Abraham was born. What does he say? I am. As a pastor, I am amazed when people say, Jesus Christ claimed to be the Son of God. He never claimed to be God. Really? This is one of the most obvious claims to deity there is in the Bible. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. I want you to notice what he didn't say. Here he didn't even say, I am the bread. I am the light. I am the way. I am the door. I am the resurrection. He didn't say that here. He didn't say, I am whatever. He simply said, I am. Ego me, present tense. I am not only from everlasting. He could have said, before Abraham was born, I was here. He didn't say that. He wanted them to see Genesis, uh, excuse me, Exodus. When Moses went and he said, who shall I say sent me? I am that I am sent you. And Jesus Christ made very clear to the very ones who were claiming promises. Do you hear why I say from this pulpit that a person must believe that Jesus Christ is God? You don't have a Savior if he's not God. Jesus Christ is God. The world wants their image of who Jesus Christ is. And so did these Jews. They knew the scriptures, they were very religious, but they would only accept the Messiah that fit their terms. And Jesus Christ says very clearly to them, before Abraham was, I am, I am God, I am very God, and I am the one you need to put your faith in. That's what he is confronting them with. Jesus claimed to be God. So he has taken them to, I don't have a demon, I'm not here for my glory. I always do the Father's will all to demonstrate that God truly was his Father. They demonstrate who they belong to by ridiculing him, by not humbling themselves when confronted with truth, by name-calling, and then ultimately, verse 59, as we close.
they took up stones to throw at him. And by the way, if you don't think that the Jews knew that he was claiming to be God, all you've got to do is look at verse 59. Because they knew exactly what he's saying. Theologians may debate that. People in the pews may debate that. He really never claimed that he was God. They knew what he was saying, and they considered it blasphemy. And according to the word of God, if that was blasphemy, he was worthy of being stoned to death. And that's exactly what they did. However, they did it wrong, because they should have gone through the court system. But they were going to do it as a mob, and they were going to kill him. And his deity was demonstrated right in their presence again when he says he hid themselves. He didn't go hide behind a rock. He miraculously disappeared out of their midst in the temple. And he relied upon what? The protection of God. That's what I've got there. God's divine protection. And so to wrap it up in the context, as he closes the feast here, and as it all winds down, what happened? The Lord Jesus Christ did go up in his own timing. And he confronted those who were making professions of faith throughout chapters 7 and 8 with reality as to who they really were. And you've heard some of that from the pulpit. And you've heard me say there's so many that are making professions of faith. If they've been born in America, if they've been born into a Christian family, if they've gone to a Christian school, if they have a computer or an iPod that has all the Bible verses and they've got everything memorized, they're a Christian. That does not make you a Christian at all. The only thing that does is your faith like Abraham's where you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who we now know is the Messiah, the only one. And these Jewish leaders, as high a position as they had and as knowledgeable as they had, were children of the devil. And I believe there are many that are walking around professing faith in Christ and are no more than the child of the devil themselves. And yes, it should cause everyone in here to examine themselves. And I'm saying this because I do love you. Because the truth needs to be heard. And we need to realize that you need to be sure that you belong to Christ. And if you do, take the personal application. First of all, if you don't know Christ, repent. Turn to Him. I saw a very tragic statistic. It came from the Presbyterian Church, by the way. Their own statistics. That within the statistics of their own church that they just analyzed, this is universally now, over 48% say that Jesus Christ is not the only way. That's not my statistic, folks. That's frightening. That's frightening. You know, more and more in the pews, people are saying it doesn't matter what you believe. You can believe this, you can believe that. Don't worry about this area of Christianity. Don't worry about that area. That's where it all starts to deteriorate. Because all of a sudden, it doesn't matter what Orthodox Christianity believed anymore. If you haven't come to Christ, turn to Him. Don't ridicule Christianity. Don't ridicule Christ. Don't get upset because you've been confronted with the reality that you're a child of the devil. Come and trust in Christ. And fellow believer, if you know Christ, take that challenge just by application for a moment. What about when you're confronted with something that's not right in your life? What about when I am? How do we react? Do we ridicule? Do we all of a sudden name call or think who in the world are they to do that to us? Or do we come with a humble heart and say, God, change it? And do we repent? And do we turn around? Christian church is to be known by love. Known by love. Unfortunately, we had an incident, and I'll be careful with it, but we had an incident 
recently that happened. It was at a sporting event between two Christian schools in which unsaved were caused to wonder, is that what Christianity is? And I say that with caution because I want you to think about your own life. Are people looking at the Christian church and seeing the love of Christ abounding? The care and concern and the evidence that we truly are a child of God, of the seed of Abraham? Or do they look at us and like with them, they look at the works and say, all they are is fighting, bickering, cutting one another down? Where's the evidence of the Christianity? Whose father are they really? Don't let that be said of us. This incident was an eye-opener for the Jewish leaders. It was an eye-opener for us. Some who profess Christ don't really know him. Wherever we stand, if you know him, walk with him. Do always those things that please the Father. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, we thank you and praise you for the word of God. It's very powerful. Father, help us not to be like we read in Proverbs. When confronted with things and corrected we are even stupid in the sense of we don't want to take the correction. We don't want to take what's been brought forward to us for truth. I start with believers today. Father, I pray that you'd help us to examine our lives. Those who not only profess faith, but truly do belong to you. I pray that you'd help us when we're confronted with areas that we need to correct. How do we react? Help us to have a humble spirit. Help us to trust ourselves to the true living God. Help us to be repentive and allow you to work in our life, to change us, to mold us, that we would be vessels fit for the Master's use. And Father, in our midst, I pray with all my heart that if there be in this room, never mind outside of these doors, in this room, people who have been professing faith in Christ, who have been claiming God as their Father and all along have not come to trust in Christ and even get irritated when challenged with that, I pray that you'd help them to humble themselves, to get it squared away today, that they'd come to Christ, trust in him, see the appeal that Jesus Christ had even to these religious leaders, that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might be saved today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.